If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And today on the show, I had the pleasure of chatting with Catherine Minshew. Catherine is the CEO and founder of The Muse, a career platform used by over 75 million people to research companies and careers. In 2018, The Muse was named one of Fast Company's 50 most innovative companies in the world and the number three most innovative company for enterprise. Catherine has spoken at MIT and Harvard. She's contributed to the Wall Street Journal and Harvard Business Review and appeared on Today and CNN, among others. Catherine worked on an HPV vaccine introduction in Rwanda with the Clinton Health Access Initiative before founding The Muse and previously worked as a consultant at McKinsey. Her first book, The New Rules of Work, The Modern Playbook for Navigating Your Career, was a Wall Street Journal national bestseller. She joins us to talk about what employees should be demanding from their employees, the future of four-year university, and how contributing her writing without pay helped launch The Muse from its only eating ramen phase to raising millions of dollars. So please enjoy my conversation with Catherine Minshew. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. We're we're recording this on the day after the uh, polls closing for the presidential election. So what a wild time to be alive, huh? It really is. And it's been a wild time to be a leader too, right? Trying to figure out how much to, you know, to, to lead from your personal beliefs, your, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and how much to allow space for just the wide diversity of experiences that people are having right now. So it's, um, it's an intense time for sure. Well, I'm so happy that you're here on the podcast with us, you know, as the founder of the muse and the host of the new rules of work. One of the topics that I just find to be the most intersectional and important right now for us to be considering is the future of work. And to your point, I'd say the other is how we bridge that delta and that gap between everybody's disparate and wide perspectives here. Absolutely. I think it's a really it's it's a really interesting time 
for all of us as, you know, as individuals, as employees, as leaders. And in particular, I'm also just fascinated by how the pandemic, the protests this summer around the murder of George Floyd, like so many different Mm -hmm. big things are happening that are changing how we work and how we show up in work. I happen to think a lot of the trends that are being accelerated are really positive ones, but it's a time of a lot of change. And I'm sure it's, you know, it's, it's very overwhelming as well. Well, unpack that further for us, if you don't mind, just because you get to think about this. more. I mean, you've worked on this for a very long time. I remember a decade ago, you were already putting together and hosting, you know, communities and forums for young entrepreneurs and, and female entrepreneurs. And that, you know, of course, grew into and in your career. I mean, you've, you've seemingly, you know, for the last decade plus really just leaned in on this subject. So I would love to hear more about what you're seeing and experiencing. Absolutely. Well, so I started the Muse about nine years ago to help people and and especially people who are in kind of early and mid phases of their career find that right fit job company and and career path. And I think you've got to hit on all three, right? Because if you're in the right job, but the wrong company or the wrong career path, um, you're, you're not really firing on all cylinders unless you can kind of get people in the middle of that Venn diagram. And so I've, I've been building the muse, talking with job seekers, talking with employers, you know, everybody from like big companies like, you know, Nike and Facebook and Apple to a lot of like small and mid-sized businesses. And I think there's a couple of trends that I'm really interested in, in, in this sort of, you know, quote unquote, future of work. You know, one is there's, there's just a, a real redefinition happening of the expected relationship between an individual and the place they work, right? And and this is maybe not new, but if you think back a couple of decades, like work was your time and and your, you know, your efforts, your output in exchange for a paycheck. There was there was a clock in, clock out. There was not the sense that employers are, you know, uh, sort of taking social issues. There was much less of a sense on behalf of employees that they should be asking and, and even demanding so many things from their employers. And I think we're seeing, you know, with the rise of not knowledge workers with the increasing competition for lots of types of talent, such as technical talent and sales talent, and frankly, millennial and Gen Z talent, I think we're really seeing, you know, a a lot of big changes. And so I've been fascinated by what talent is asking for. You know, this is I like this 10 years of research, so I'm, I'm going quickly. But, you know, a lot of the, the talent that uses the muse, they're, they're not just looking for a job. They're looking for a path. They're looking for an employer with values that aligns to their own. You know, if you think about as well, a lot of young employees on the coasts being vocal in their workplaces is one of the perhaps the highest leverage places they have to affect change. You know, especially if you live in a, in a state where, you know, the, the sort of state's outcome, (laughs) you know, in the electoral college is fairly predetermined. You might actually, as a young person, make the calculation that being active in your employer and pushing for things like, you know, racial justice, inclusion, flexibility, all of these different themes that pushing for these themes through your employer is, you know, maybe just as effective as fighting for them on the streets or at the ballot box. And so I think we're seeing a lot of just, you know, again, interesting activism on behalf of younger employees. For companies, they really have to work for talent in a way that they didn't 10 years ago. So totally. if you're an employer, yeah, you've got you've to gotta say, why us? Why would you pick my company over all of the different companies that are hiring marketers, financial analysts, engineers? And I think that's really redefining the relationship and and we can you know talk maybe more later on about how that that manifests in authenticity how you know workplaces are becoming more human but i think it's a it's a fascinating time to be in this space because everything that you thought you knew about how hr worked is being 
questioned. And a mm-hmm. lot of it is is really the rules are being rewritten right now. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you unpack it that way. I think about how, you know, back a decade ago, there was still this like breakneck competition for best in class, say, engineering talent or like best in class, say, enterprise salespeople. And you would essentially get them by overpaying or by having a better like food program in the cafeteria or like a bus that gets you to Palo Alto or whatever. But what you're describing is an intrinsic motivation. It's internal, not external. And I think back to myself as like a young professional, and I really didn't have an intrinsic compass like I think young people today do. Like we had more of a life that we knew we wanted to get to or a professional, you know, reputation that would unlock the lifestyle that we were seeking. I find that young people today, that is the secondary or tertiary. And I don't mean to speak in like this gross generalization, totally. but like to your, to your point, it's the culture, it's the community, it's the values and the mission of the organization that seems to motivate our best, you know, workers to, to, to get after it. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's, it's so interesting for a number of reasons. You know, first of all, there's that as a society, um, many parts of our society are becoming, you know, very values driven, very mission aware. We're seeing this in consumer behavior. So there's that thread. There's also, mm-hmm. though, I think this really interesting impact of social media and and sort of specifically the fact that we are not only, for many people, um, we're living our lives and seeing other people live their lives in real time all the time. And when you think about, you know, let's say 15 years ago, the biggest thing that a lot of college students and young people looked at were these published lists of the best places to work. And I'm making that voice for a reason, right? Because they were often these very like kind of classic lists full of the same classic employers. And, you know, now I think when you look at the diversity of things that people are looking for from their employer, the idea that you could just stack rank every company in the world on a single list, frankly, to me, I think it's a bit silly. It's like saying it's ridiculous. You're the 10 best people to marry in New York City. Like, what yeah. even sort of a list is that? It's much more about, you know, who are you? <laughs> what do you care about? Yeah, thank you. I, I just... Yeah. You know, it's a big part of what I'm doing at the Muse. It's frankly, it's a it's it's a big part of the first section of my book is like you've got to as an individual understand what matters to you, what do you want and you need in your career. Obviously, also what can you bring to the table, but what do you care about? What are your values? Not just big picture values, but but what are your preferences? Do you want to work in an organization where there's a lot of clarity and a lot of consistency and a low um, velocity of change? Or do you want one where things are always changing and always moving? Bam, bam, bam. You know, no, nothing's uh, stable because you thrive on that. Those are both acceptable, but you've got to understand what you want and then you can go out there and get it. And I think it's giving companies a lot of flexibility to be themselves rather than saying, you know, we're going to check five boxes and be on this list. They're like, okay, who are we? What can we offer to employees? But on the flip side, you've got to practice what you preach because employees can be, they can be very punishing if companies are making big expansive promises and then not living those up. I think there's a, you know, there's a real desire for what's said externally to match what's experienced internally. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm thinking back, I got uh, historically, like, you know, the advice where it's like, okay, you're a young person, you're entering the job market. It's like, just do anything and 
figure out whether you like it or not. That was sort of the advice I got. I was like, well, try it. And, you know, through that experience, you'll get to know yourself and what, you know, you enjoy the most. And now I, I'm listening to you talk. I'm like, man, that's actually kind of terrible advice because <laughs> if we examined our motivations and the types of environments that we feel most comfortable in and that we thrive in, I think that would probably lead to a greater level of engagement, which would make it more fun and we'd perform better and we'd be on it. Like time seems to be a little more finite as things accelerate. Yeah. Well, a couple things. One, first of all, I love that you brought the focus to when you get that right fit, people perform better. Like they do mm -hmm. better and it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be this big idea, but it's actually fascinating to me that talent and HR as a function are just starting to get really smart about connecting pre-hire and post-hire data. They're just starting to get smart about saying, wait a second, if we do a better job of being honest and authentic before someone comes into the company, and we therefore make sure that they're a better fit with our organization, our you know culture, our values, our way of working, and their role, then they will be higher performing. They'll be more likely to stay. They'll be more successful here. And I think that's been such an interesting part of my time leading the muse, frankly, um, because you know early on, especially when the business was small, I often really struggled where sometimes our early customers were so used to measuring, you know, is a hire successful based purely on how cheap was it to fill that role? Mm. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, look, we all want to pay less, but wouldn't you rather get the right person? And then, you know, to your point about, about young people today, I do think though, we've got to cut ourselves some slack because, you know, 10, 20 years ago, there was not the sort of information available about what different careers were even out there. I mean, mm. I remember when I was in college, I went to the, uh, the career center and sure. they gave me like a book and it was like 498 unconventional careers for liberal arts majors. Like, okay, great. You know, yeah. there wasn't this sort of like richness of information. There wasn't this focus on understanding yourself and, and matching that with a different path. And so, you know, I, I tend to think that like people did the best they could, but now there, there are tools, there's information, there's technology that I think allows people to make smarter choices a little sooner that are maybe a little bit less reliant on trial and error, even though frankly, trial and error still has its place. And I did it a lot in my own early career. Yeah, it's so and when you find people that are motivated by passion as an entrepreneur and as a founder, you want to hold on to them for dear life because you know, you you now have someone that is going to grow themselves in a sense. Their their curiosity is going to lead the next lead that they unearth for the company or their own, you know, career development. And it's interesting because I also I'll talk to like, you know, ex-GE executives who blow my mind and they're like they understand career development and leadership and executive training and development in a way and in a science that it's just beyond me. But, you know, when I, when I hear, again, when I think about like, you know, young people dedicating themselves to something that they care about, like if I'm in any of these, you know, and, and, and it can be, you know, very long tail, especially to the point you made that, you know, we now know about all these jobs. We now can find all of these people. If you're into like one particular type of, you know, molecular biology, or if you want to make meatless fish or whatever, there's like multiple <laughs> companies out there that are doing all this crazy shit in the world. And if you truly have a passion about it and you talk to somebody who is in that organization that shares your passion, it is a breath of fresh air because I get to talk about the thing I love. I get to impart my knowledge in this thing that I love to someone else, therefore extending myself. 
and you know the body of work. So I just like I you know I, I love I love that this has been the focus of the muse. And I mean I want to know more. Like so so if, I, so if I'm a young person, I'm going down that path. You do you recommend like anagrams? Do you recommend like what are some of the ways that you think practically people can help themselves along this journey? Yeah. So, okay. So I think there's a few different things that I'd recommend. Step one is to start with your values. So I often recommend, and we've got a whole exercise in my book about, you know, a longer form version of this, but I often recommend that people spend a little time thinking about what sort of life do you want to to lead and not what job do you want to do or what functions you want to do, but literally what does it look like? Is uh, flexibility important to you? Do you want to work in an office, you know, in one place? Do you want to travel? Do you want to always be talking to people? Do you want to be buried in, you know, Microsoft Excel or in a lab? Like what literal like sorts of activities day to day matter to you? And then start to to put down on paper um, the, the, the way that you want to experience work. Again, you know, for some people, high compensation, high prestige, others might value creativity and things constantly changing. You can keep it, again, very, very high level at the beginning because it's just about sort of what sparks joy, if you want to use a Marie Kondo expression, but, you know, what is it that, that excites you? It can also be really helpful in this phase to talk to people who know you well. And when you can start to zero in on what some of those things are, then what I recommend is do do a little bit of research. So if you're really at the beginning of your career, that research might look like, okay, I think that, you know, brand marketing might be interesting, or, um, you know, I've heard maybe I should consider sales. Great. Just write down, you know, three to five possible career paths. Um, If you're a little bit further in your career, these might be, you know, specific job titles, they might be specific companies. And then honestly, I'd say, you know, just start with Google. Um, one of the biggest yeah. things, and this is something that, you know, honestly, it's it's part of why I started the Muse. I wanted people to be able to hear from people in different roles and hear from employees at different companies and to be able to go online without having to have a big fancy network and just mm. watch a video of somebody in a particular job at a particular company talking about what they do and see like, does that excite you? Does it interest you? Um, there's a lot of ink spilled about informational interviews. And obviously I'm a, I'm a big fan, but sometimes you don't have somebody in your network who you can sit down, you know, one-on-one over coffee with. Um, but there's a lot of great resources online. And, you know, obviously I'm super biased, but I happen to think that the Muse is the best. Uh, but, the, but, the, you know, Googling will lead you down a lot of places. And I think back to some of the the jobs that I took when I was younger, the career paths that I wanted to explore. And sometimes it is only talking to someone who actually does that job that helps you realize like, oh crap, that is not what I thought, or that is not for me. And that's great, right? It's great to know what you don't want just as as much as it is to know what you do. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way, is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Cannot believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. You were a management consultant at McKinsey. You worked for the Clinton Health Access Initiative and traveled the world. How did you end up in these roles? Did you have like a unique path or did it follow the the advice that you're giving here? So I, I do think it followed some of the advice I'm giving here, although, you know, there was frankly a lot of trial and error. Um, and I built a lot of the tools on the muse because I wanted them and I didn't have them back when I was younger. Um, but yeah, the, the quick, you know, short version of my story is that um, I got it into my head around probably age 14 years old or something that I wanted to work for the CIA or the State Department. Um, okay. I, was, I was, yeah. So I don't know if you ever watched <laughs> that, um, that television show Alias back in the day. It was Jennifer Garner played a double agent, Sydney Bristow. And you're also from Virginia, right? You're from like the yeah. D.C. area. Yeah, well, yeah. So I was born in Texas, actually, but we moved to the D.C. Uh, area when I was like 12. And yeah, that was around when like I started to get to know people who worked in the Foreign Service. And, you know, it just I became captivated by the idea of like international work and maybe undercover, maybe not. Um, but honestly, I mean, embarrassingly, the TV show was definitely a contributor to what I thought that job was like. And luckily, yeah, it's, you know, this, and that's very common, frankly, that people get their earliest ideas of what careers are like from the media. And so I, I had this idea. I followed it for years. I made all of these decisions in school based on, you know, I'm going to go work for the CIA or the state department, boom, boom, boom. And luckily um, in 2007, I, uh, I, you know, we're talking about trial and error earlier. Um, I applied for and was accepted to, uh, basically like a summer position at the U.S. Embassy in Nicosia, Cyprus, um, in the Mediterranean. Crazy. Yeah, it was, 
I mean, it was a wild experience. I did a drill where I got chased through the embassy with uh, by Marines with guns. I I mean, it was I was it was part of the drill. I was playing a terrorist. They did a great job. They caught me. Um, but you know, I had all of these like insane experiences. But mm-hmm. I realized like this isn't what I thought it was. And so it was the error part of trial and error. Um, I went into consulting after that. But you know, I do think I saved myself from other moves that were not that that would have been even further away from where I should have been by, you know, doing research online. I used to just troll, like not troll in the way that people use it now, but I used to spend like hours looking at company career sites and, you know, going on everything I could find to try and learn, like, what are these jobs actually like? Because I realized after that first experience, I better get a lot smarter about what uh, company culture was like, what, you know, what the day-to-day of a job was like before I jumped in. Because for a full-time job, you really, you know, you want to try and stay a couple of years. And I, I think that uh, that was a lesson I learned the hard way, I guess I'll say. Yeah, totally. And I'm curious now, like here we are, 2020, the world changing. How do you feel about four-year universities and certifications and what we have versus where we're going? Oh, great question. You know, I think that there, I think that the future is going to see a lot more acceptable pathways. And for some people, four-year university is going to be great. I learned a ton. I had an amazing time. Like, I think that there's going to be for individual students and for certain career paths, I think that there's, you know, there's always going to be a place for a a kind of classic four-year university system. But I'm also a big believer in other ways of getting to the same goal. And whether that's a certification program, whether that's some of these organizations that help people leap directly into working, um, into, you know, various forms of um, paid internships and externships. Uh, You know, I think one of the For example, one of the very small crusades that I've been on personally is that we shouldn't require a four-year college degree for jobs that don't require a four-year college degree, which turns out is a lot of jobs. If you're an engineer, like just make sure that they're a great engineer. Does you know? Do you care if they graduated from a you know accredited university, or do you care if they're great at coding? Um, And I think if we did that, we might actually open up some of these fields to a much broader more eclectic, more diverse, more interesting array of people than by kind of arbitrarily putting requirements in because maybe that's how it was done in the past. That makes a lot of sense. And I and I think about that because, you know, like I, I went to a four-year university and I really didn't learn much inside the classroom, but <laughs> I went to, I've been to American University in DC. Um, but I learned so much by having kids in my school from like a hundred different countries. I went to, from like being a jock in Texas and having like, you know, not the most diverse network, although sport was really the thing that allowed me to understand, you know, socioeconomic diversity and, 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 you know, racial or international diversity. Um, that's where I got the access to people that were outside of like, say my direct community, but really going to college was where it like completely globalized my thinking. However, had I gone to like, you know, Texas state or had not to talk shit on Texas state. Sorry, all the Texas state grads out there, but I think I would have had a lot of fun in New Braunfels and partied a lot, but I don't know that I would have come out of there with any sort of like professional skill set or gains. So like, you know, I, I'm just, for, for, for me, I, I look at, you know, this, all of the jobs of the future that haven't been invented yet in a sense, you know, like in the idea that, you know, the crippling student debt and like just the, the the math typically doesn't really work out right now for a lot of people, I think, globally for sure, but it's in the US now too. And, you know, I'm happy to hear you say that you think that we're going to be in a future where certifications and just capability is going to be the key, not, you know, the accrentialism that, you know, used to open the door. 
Yeah. And I, I think, you know, your story is such a, is such a good one because it's often these other experiences that broaden the mind, that, that broaden your skill set, um, that, that may or may not be taught inside a classroom. And frankly, I think any time in human existence that you have people who just sort of hop on the conveyor belt path of life, like first you go here, then you do this, mm-hmm. next you do this, like that serves some people but it doesn't serve everyone and it doesn't necessarily serve society as a whole. And so I hope that collectively we can move towards a world where we're telling young people, look, here's a path. Here are the advantages. Here are the disadvantages. Here's other paths. You know, here are some of the other opportunities because it is a great big wide world out there. And I don't think we do a really good job sometimes of helping people, especially people from certain parts of the country, certain geographies, certain family structures, certain backgrounds. I don't know that we do a good job of saying like, here, here's what's out there. So with the muse, I imagine that's changed tremendously for you. You know, like that the the media landscape has changed tremendously. The way that people, I imagine they consume your content has shifted five times in the last 10 years. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. So tell us a little bit about that journey just as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean it's it's been a really wild one. Um, so if you look at the business today, we have roughly between five to seven million people every month who are coming to themuse.com. And um, content is obviously one of the things that we're really known for, but a lot of people are coming to us as well to research companies and browse the company profiles mm-hmm. and watch the different you know employee videos. And we have a text-based employee Q&As and then obviously applying to jobs, which is frankly yeah. how we make most of our revenue. And, and that's sort of the heart of the marketplace is when you can kind of connect the right person to the right job at the right company, it's great for everybody because ideally if they get hired, it's it's good for them, it's good for the company. And then, you know, obviously it's, it's great for us. And um, I would say it's been a wild ride, of course. I spent the first four years running the business with just no money. I jokingly call it the blood, sweat, and ramen phase because um, from, you know, basically like 2012 uh, to early 2015, we just we just never had any money. We were this like tiny, tiny band of, you know, kind of insane, passionate, driven people that were going up against these huge platforms. Like uh, at the time, you know, LinkedIn and Monster was big then. And um, mm-hmm. I think it it took us a couple of years to not only kind of crack the code of the revenue model and the business, but also frankly, to get enough traction that investors could look past the fact that we were fairly young, uh, all-female founding team, which is very unusual. And um, mm-hmm. once we were really able to demonstrate not only that we could attract you know millions of people, but that we could actually monetize in a really interesting way, that's when the business as a business really took off. How did you? But how how did you do that? I don't mean to interrupt you, but like. That's that, that's like we just we just blaze past the fact that you built this and started it and then had millions of people that were visiting the website monthly. Like, how did you grow the business? How did you get that that exponential? So uh, there was definitely an element of throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, okay, okay. So, so basically, in the very early days, I uh, I knew from my own experience and from talking to others that many young job seekers did not feel like their needs were being met. And lest that seem like a crazy statement, you know, if you think back like nine years ago, basically like monster.com was still one of the biggest places to find jobs. And I don't know if you've used that platform in a while, but it is not, it's not very modern. It's not. Yeah. Very and the um, LinkedIn of 2010 does not look like the LinkedIn of 2020. 
Totally. And, you know, LinkedIn's asset has always been your network. But if you don't have a network because you're early in your career, it 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 has struggled to be as effective for younger people and younger talent. It makes a lot of sense. People that are, yeah, that are further in their career. Um, not only that, but there was a, a just an absolute like gap in great career advice. Uh, you would Google different questions like how to negotiate a raise and the content was just terrible. And it was often from sources that were kind of, you know, just didn't really seem that legitimate. And so I had started a blog uh, about a year before the muse that got like 20,000 people very quickly through almost entirely word of mouth. And so I had some confidence that there was this need, but obviously identifying a need is only part of the battle. So when we launched the muse, I did a bunch of like small kind of almost guerrilla marketing things to get the word out. Let's see. So this would have been very late 2011. First of all, I personally emailed like 900 student and alumni groups that had some sort of career focus. So, you know, Stanford women in law, the Baldwin scholars, and basically sent them an email about why I was launching the Muse, what we did, and asked them, can we help your members? Can we help with additional career advice? There were not so many startups at this point in time. So it was still a little bit novel at that point to get an email about a new startup. We had a very, very kind of clear sense when you landed on themuse.com, you could really understand what we were trying to do. So a lot of people who came to the site told their friends, you know, we, we had everybody that we knew share it on social. We actually got very lucky in that a former colleague of mine ended up working at AOL and he mentioned what we were doing to Ariana Huffington. And so she wrote an article about advice she would give her younger self for the launch of the Muse that we put on the homepage. And that really helped legitimize us because when people came to the site and they're like, you know, what is this random website I've never heard of? There was an article with great advice by Ariana Huffington. That's amazing of her. Yeah, it was it was incredible. And I think, you know, we were very focused in the beginning also on helping um, helping women navigate their careers. And so that was something that I think she really connected with. Content syndication was a nut that we cracked that probably drove at least 5,000 of our first month's users and maybe 20,000 uh, shortly after. Essentially, we, at that point in time, a lot of these other sites on the web, like Forbes and places, were first starting to take contributor content. And so I was like, okay, well, I have a product. I need to get it in front of people. The best way to do that is to find where those people are and go see if I can, you know, get in their field of vision and be like, hey, come check me out. Um, mm -hmm. And so I knew a lot of those people were on Forbes. And so I approached editors at Forbes and said, I'd like to give you really high quality career advice content for free with some links back to this new site called The Muse. And at that point in time, I was able to convince them through basically a combination of like cold networking and I don't know, I guess being fairly persuasive to put the Muse as a contributor account. And at one point in time, I think we had the number one, number four, and number five most popular articles in the business section of Forbes. And those articles were getting hundreds of thousands of views on Forbes, which they were happy about. But some small percentage, you know, honestly, probably one or 2% of those people were clicking back through the links and coming back and discovering this new site called The Muse that wow. was all about helping you navigate your career, find a job. Um, and that was one of our biggest early sources of traffic. Now, over time, organic search, referral partners, word of mouth, like now there's a, a bunch of different ways that people hear about us. But in the beginning, when we had no brand, it was really about figuring out, you know, who does have an audience, a community, a brand, and how do we offer them something of value so that they will give us space to be to be seen and to be discovered. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. 
Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made this show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I love that story. And it is just so, like, it's so street level. It's like, it's, and, and it obviously you, you must've been a very talented writer and a very persuasive person. And, you know, they, they, you, you brought content that they wanted. So you were very prescriptive in terms of like, you're reading, you know, the platform and what you went to, what you went with Forbes. But I just like saying that back to you, cause we forget, I forget. Cause like, here you are, you know, like 10 years later, you know, you've raised tens of millions of dollars. You've touched millions of people through the, through the platform and what you guys do and, and, and well, what you ladies do. Um, and, and, you know, we, and, and you literally were doing free work for Forbes. That was your solution. You're like, I'm going to go and work for free for another company. I'm literally not just going to run my business, but I'm going to write content for you guys. And like, it's just, that's the auspicious, auspicious beginnings of like all this stuff, right? Like, I feel like every, the, the story of mine that I, that has come to mind in this conversation that I thought you'd appreciate. Cause like, you know, it's a different skill set, it's a different type of product ultimately ultimately I built with summit and you built with the news, but you know, I remember watching the Woodstock documentary probably around the same time, say 2009. 
at 2010. We maybe started Summit, you know, with within the year. And I saw Michael Lang on this documentary and was like, this dude was a visionary. Like clearly there's four founders, but this guy was the one who sort of like had, you know, the moment. Uh, and, and I Googled him and I found the Michael Lang organization on Google and I literally called the office the next day and I sent him an email and he took a meeting with me because do you know how few people who are in their early twenties do that? Like literally nobody reaches out to this guy like that. Right. So, so like it was in it and I did nothing special I, and I just did it. And I think I went and like, you know, flip flops and shorts to this guy's office as like a 22 year old idiot. And, uh, and, you know, and I was like, man, how'd you do it? Like so incredible, whatever. And he's like, yeah, I, I, I built a stage. It's like a really humble guy. I've actually had him on the podcast and, and therein lies the wisdom of like Michael, you know, like he's, re he's, 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 and, and he hasn't, it's like Woodstock means peak experience moment, right? Like it hasn't necessarily happened again since then. But, uh, you know, I just, I just think it illustrates like, you're like, I'll go write for free at another platforms, you know, publication. And, you know, I'm like, I'll, I'll, you know, cold call this guy and take me and like, you know, of course, later on, like he spoke at summit and, you know, it was really valuable to have as like a sounding board for, you know, hosting events and building events, which is something I'm super passionate about. And just people don't get the opportunity. I, I imagine the people at Forbes who met you were like, wow, Catherine like loves this space. She really cares about helping job seekers. We got to like do more with her. Yeah. And I think your, you know, your story too, I love it because it illustrates so much of that early success is it boils down often to the same couple things. One, showing up, putting in the, you know, putting in the work, like getting on the plane, doing the thing, you know, reaching out. Um, but also I think I, early on, I put a lot of time and energy into thinking what makes this a win for them? Because mm -hmm. it's really obvious for you what you want, but if you can't go to people with ideally something that that helps them. And sometimes that's as simple as, you know, it makes them, like you said earlier, it, it allows them to pass on their experience and to feel good about what they've learned and, and the path they've had. Um, but sometimes it's more concrete, like, hey, can I write content for your site? Yeah. Whatever it is, I think that um, there's a lot of those little things that can help you get that toehold. And what you do with the opportunity is obviously up to you. But um, but it's, it's like sometimes you've just got to put in a very particular type of work to get uh, to get noticed or get that opportunity in the first place. And if you're and you know, we're talking about the, like us climbing the mountain, but it, there's also all these other mountain climbers that are starting right at the same time as you. And so when I fast forward to 2020 and I think about the greatest resources I have today, it's actually the people that were around me then who are also starting their own things and have like, whether they succeeded or failed, we all had these like incredible shared experiences and built all this different wisdom and, and you know, through those experiences. And I, I'm curious, is that something that you also share? Like, I, I just... I see that as such a phenomenon when I look back and I'm like, man, like all the entrepreneurs and founders that were around in my early 20s are the ones who, you know, I can really lean on and rely on. And we all sort of have that shared experience. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and I think that there's a few different layers in which that's helpful. One of them is, you know, a lot of the best advice and mentorship that I got was not from people who were wildly successful five to 10 years ahead, but in some mm. cases it was from other founders who were just six months down the road. And that could be powerful because sometimes they have more time for you because, you know, not, not everybody's asking for it. And they've literally just been where you are. So it's very mm. fresh. You know, now 
uh, people reach out and ask me about seed investors uh, for tech companies. And like, I've got great relationships with a number, but I haven't raised a seed round in like five years. So I'm, you know, I'm not as close to it versus like someone who just did a seed round last year might have their pulse on what you need to do and some advice. And then also exactly what you said, like, there are so many incredible people that, you know, we were all like just starting out together, you know, in the trenches together, just nobody's trying to make our mark um, 10 years ago. And it's been really awesome and inspiring to see where, you know, where all these folks have ended up. And, um, and I just can't even wait to see what the next 10 years bring. Totally. And, and I'm just, you know, I think one of the things that we all have to always fear as entrepreneurs or creatives or whatever is, is irrelevance, right? Whether or not your organization is relevant, like that's the real competition. It's not the other job site. It's not the other, you know, event or conference company. It's whether or not like we are innovating in, in creating a conversation around our brands that, that matters to people. So I want to know, like for you, you know, here we are 2020. I'm, I'm obviously, Obviously, you're preaching to the converted here because, like, I think that the future of work is like the predominant intersectional issue that we all should be really considering right now. But I, I want to know for you, like, how do you how do you battle that? How do you continue to keep the brand and the movement fresh? Yeah, well, I think that as as an individual, a human, and as an organization, you've got to step out of your comfort zone as much as possible. You've got to talk to people who don't like your product. You've got to talk to people who've never heard of your product. You've got to try things, ideally in sort of small contained ways where you can learn. Um, but I think that that you've got to kind of shake things up because if you stay comfortable, you will you will never stay relevant. And on top of that, I think that you know one of the struggles as well for a lot of entrepreneurs is a balance between you know you need to be very respectful of of data because your intuition's not always right, but you also have to trust your gut because data is sometimes incomplete um, or or isn't able to tell you the full story. And so, you know, I think um, I, I try and have a lot of conversations with a, a really broad, eclectic set of people. I, I try and just, you know, keep, keep my perspective really fresh. And um, this past year, I spent a ton of time like digging into, you know, what are colleges doing in response to the pandemic and how are students thinking about getting internships and jobs with the whole world being upside down? And that was really helpful for, you know, staying relevant. I think there's always more work to be done. You know, part of it is just staying really hungry and staying committed and keeping people around you that push you and that don't just like, you know, pat you on the back and say, nice job and and let you kick up your feet. Well, I really appreciate that. And and Catherine, I, I, I'm so thankful for you and your perspective and for the muse and for the new rules of work. I encourage our listeners who are, you know, in this phase of their careers to go down the rabbit hole here because I found, you know, the, I really enjoyed the podcast. I really love the website. And I always have. Like, you know, it's 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 always been fresh. It's always had energy in, you know, a space that is seemingly mostly dry and and pedantic and, you know. It's more databases than it is, you know, culture and feeling and and content. So this being one of the craziest days, you know, like probably some one, one that we'll remember for the rest of our lives. I want to be respectful of your time, but again, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for your work. And and if there's any other resources that you think the listeners should should check out, or if there's any, you know, deep, you know, as old as the trees and the rivers wisdom that comes up in your head on an off and on a regular basis that you want to impart on our way out, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> well, way to leave me on a way to leave me on a big one. I mean, I um, you know, I I always love the the sort of the quote or the concept that you know if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. 
And I think that sometimes we live in a culture where, especially for entrepreneurship and building, um, people love to tell the overnight success story. They love to, you know, kind of condense things really quickly into like, oh, you know, I I wrote for Forbes and then we had all these users. Like, look, the real the real story of everything is like days where it seems like everything's failing and, you know, nights where you lay in bed, like gripped by existential dread that it's all just, you know, it's all falling apart. And a lot of stuff like all success is, you know, is is surrounded by many failures, <laughs> many deaths of your dream. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, I think I would just say, like, you know, if you really believe in something, that uh, don't don't let people convince you that uh, that success comes easily. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But some of the most meaningful things are the most challenging as well. And I. Uh, you know, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me. I hope people check out the muse and uh, or, you know, tweet at me at at Cayman um, on Twitter if you have feedback or comments. But um, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks so much. Of course. Thank you so much, Catherine. And thank you for listening. This is the Art of the Hustle. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.